when we're talking about cycling, we're obviously not just talking about a means of transport. This is for a lot of people a means of liberation. Between the traffic calm streets and the, the segregated routes and the protected intersections, you know, it's possible to cycle from door to door virtually anywhere in a, a city in the Netherlands. And that's really the conditions that you, you need to create if you want mass cycling for everyone and not just the fit and the brave. Today we are talking to Chris Bruntlett from the Dutch Cycling Embassy, which offers resources and information to create a bicycle-friendly world. I'm Lindsay Sturman for Bike Talk. Welcome, Chris Bruntlett. Some of the audience may not know what the Dutch Cycling Embassy is. We're an organization that's been around for about 10 years. Um, we were actually started by the national government here in the Netherlands that was uh, at the time, they were just overwhelmed with incoming requests from other governments um, because they had this reputation as being a great cycling country. And as other countries were looking to implement uh, um, similar measures, they were asking the Dutch about policy infrastructure to come for study tours. Uh, media wanted uh, uh, to, to speak to people. And, and so they set up this external organization to specifically handle these requests uh, and then represent uh, the various organizations and uh, um, consultancies that, that work in the field of cycling uh, and help them connect with markets and, and, uh, and municipal governments overseas to export all this knowledge and expertise that exists here because uh, the Dutch have been doing this for a very long time and they've kind of figured out what works and what doesn't work and they're in a position now to help the rest of the world uh, become more bicycle friendly. The Dutch, in their very nature, aren't the types to say they're the best at something. They're not going to boast or uh, pat themselves on the back, and 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 sometimes maybe they leave a, need a little bit of a nudge to say, "Hey, we're the we are the best in the world at this," and uh, and we should be proud of that, and we should be um, selling it as an export product, as we do with uh, water management here, with uh, you know all these fields that the Dutch are experts in. Uh, we need to view cycling as a, another important um, and economically viable export product that they can take around the world and sell um, to help cities um, yeah, achieve the same levels of success. Have they exported it to cities where you feel like it, it's happening? Yes, but, uh, but it's, uh, as we often stress, it's, uh, it's a, a decades-long journey. It's a multi-generational journey. Nothing's going to happen overnight, but... Uh, in, the book that I co-authored with with my wife Melissa, um, we actually highlight ten cities in America and Canada that have learned from the Dutch and have gotten started on their own journeys. These are um, the usual suspects, you know, Seattle, New York, but also less likely places like Austin, Texas, Atlanta, that have taken inspiration from what Dutch cities do and gotten started. And they are many years away from the double digit mode shares that the bicycle enjoys here, but they've got a plan, a very concrete long-term plan that's largely been embraced by the public and, and the politicians. And they've also secured the funding for the most part and, and now are in the position where they're building it uh, literally cycle track by cycle track with a, a long-term vision to maybe not get 50% uh, of all trips made by bicycle as are made here in Delft, but 15 or 20%, which I think is more manageable in, in a fairly car-dominated US context, in a, in a more sprawling context, but also using cycling to combine with public transport and just 
give people options because uh, unfortunately in a lot of places the car is the only option. When you look at the cities in America, like New York, are there cities that you feel like can totally do this? And are there cities you feel like it's hopeless? Hmm. That's a great question. Again, it's not copying Amsterdam or becoming Amsterdam. It's just taking inspiration from Amsterdam to make your city a better place and giving people choice in their mobility options. So as I was saying with Atlanta, you know, it's not just a matter of building cycling infrastructure, but combining the cycling with the the bus network and the and the train network there to create this this multimodal system. So even in, in a place like Atlanta, it's possible to build more cycling into the city. Uh, it, it may not be the same levels as, as elsewhere in the world, but it's certainly a viable option. And it's, it's perhaps even easier in places like that because they have so much space on their streets. And it really just comes down to how you allocate the space on your streets. Uh, fortunately, a lot of US cities have six, these giant six or eight lane boulevards uh, where they, can, they do have space for cycling, uh, but they, they need the political will and the, the public will to actually start. Starting is often perhaps the most uh, difficult part. How do you find the best way to allay people's fears and misbeliefs and to break through? Yeah, we, we always used to joke that it was, you know, what, we, what it would take for the widespread adoption of, of uh, Dutch style infrastructure was getting everybody in that city a plane ticket to the Netherlands to experience <laughs> it firsthand. And, um, I mean, on a more serious note, we do uh, host these study tours that are really strategically um, aligned to get key decision makers, city councillors, even mayors uh, within that city organization to come here and um, not just learn technically how to do it, but to just see how a city works uh, when a significant portion of the trip are made by bicycle. Um, this was all pre-COVID, of course, and, and I think one thing that we've seen with the corona crisis is suddenly people have experienced their streets um, outside their front door at a completely different uh, level. The, the, the noise, the stress levels, the ability to just um, talk to your neighbors and, and uh, you know, take a, a physically distant walk or a bike ride without the threat of uh, you know, huge volumes of, of, of cars and, and moving at high speeds. So people have gotten a taste of that now, what, what their city and their streets can function like, can feel like, and, and, and even with the proliferation of outdoor dining districts, the transformation of some of these streets and parking lots and parking spaces into terraces and patios, while well, a lot of these U.S. cities kind of have a European flavor, a European feel to them. And the trick, of course, is always turning that latent demand uh, and that thing that people are experiencing into permanent change. And right now what we're working on, uh, albeit mostly digitally, is uh, webinars and digital learning and workshops to help cities uh, come up with strategies to make some of these temporary measures more permanent and capture some of that uh, momentum that's been created from the coronavirus. And it's obviously a terrible situation and the economy is going to take a long time to recover and, and endless people have suffered in terms of their health. But um, it's really challenged us uh, to look at our cities and, and our streets specifically and ask very important questions about the allocation of space and who should they work for. And, and we hope that this is a start of a, a transformation process of our cities to make them just more pleasant places 
to live. If people in Los Angeles wanted to make a city where at least some people could bike, are there best practices around that? Absolutely, yeah. And I think at the very beginning, it's important to stress that it's not black and white. We're not expecting everyone to switch to the bicycle for every journey that they take. Um, and especially in a, a sprawling region like Los Angeles, um, people are, are traveling significant distances and you, the expectation that they all start cycling all of a sudden is, is not realistic. But, you know, the statistics about how short, uh, how many short car trips take place in our city are, are quite astounding. Uh, and it's millions and millions of, uh, of, of these short one or two or three mile car journeys that we take because um, driving has just been made, you know, the most convenient and the most comfortable option and so we um, often work with when we're working with a new city we look at trying to capture some of those short car journeys 15 percent of those car journeys under three miles uh, the effect on congestion the effect on air and noise quality is significant and that comes from mostly looking at, at the network level um, not necessarily uh, in designing individual cycle routes one one at a time, um, but uh, this concept of a minimum grid of, to get people from door to door. And that is a very important part of the planning process that I think a lot of cities skip. Um, but coming up with a vision of, of where you want to be 10, 20, 30 years from now, um, and then selling this to the public as, as a way of increasing choice increasing affordability, livability, sustainability, all these things that, that uh, our cities are grappling with. Um, cycling just happens to be one of the answers to a lot of these really difficult 21st century challenges. What do you find the most persuasive arguments? You know, climate, livability, yeah. healthcare expenses, like what gets people? Decision makers want to hear especially politicians, they often talk in terms of dollars and cents. So this is a, you know, a mode of travel that's going to save us money in terms of road maintenance and congestion and the infrastructure costs for, for uh, the general public. Uh, you may not want to get into facts and figures, but talk more about the emotional aspects of quality of life improvement and, uh, and how good it feels, how fun it is to get on a bike and how much freedom and autonomy that offers um, but it, I think one thing we always stress is that um, in order to make these changes, you have to find a really broad coalition of um, like-minded groups. And, and that is, you know, the public health authorities who need to be convinced about the health benefits. It is the uh, neighborhood associations and the families. Uh, it, it may be um, any number of of groups that all have their own separate levels of interest and expertise and and but uh, they can usually be brought under this this big umbrella of building a more livable city and and uh, that's when you really see that the uh, the changes can be made uh, that's so interesting and are there raw numbers that you guys talk about in terms of healthcare dollars saved um obviously there's climate i mean um around poverty are, are, you know, are there raw numbers that resonate with elected officials? Yeah. So um, one of the, the members of the Dutch cycling embassy, it's a research agency called Decisio and they're based in Amsterdam. 
Um, and they do this really interesting kind of social cost benefit analysis uh, around a cycling plan or a cycling project. And they look at, you know, for it's usually here in Europe for every Europe invest uh, every euro that's invested in cycling. What are the uh, the returns on that investment in terms of health benefits, uh, reduction in congestion, increase in productivity? Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it varies from from city to city, but we often talk about a, um, a return on investment of 20 to 30 euros for every single euro that's invested. Uh, and, and it's uh, really remarkable when you're talking about um, how little these these how little money these these projects cost. I mean, um, the the big uh, Hoven ring. Uh, suspended cycling roundabout that was built in Eindhoven a number of years ago that that is just like this amazing piece of infra cycling infrastructure that hovers over the intersection and has become an icon for this city uh, was built for about five million euros which is you know the rounding error on on a, a big motorway project and yet when you think about all the benefits the economic benefits is brought to that region it, it's very difficult to to think of it as uh just the cost of that city because it's brought them so much more in terms of attention and, and economic uh, development and, and it's helped them brand their city as a, a really progressive place for businesses to set up and uh, to attract talent to to come and work in their in their city um, so I think you know there's uh, yeah many economic arguments that, that could be made and, and especially as we look forward into a post-corona world uh, you know as we try to uh, stimulate an economic recovery, a, a Green New Deal, if you will. Um, cycling should and, and must play a, a central role in that in terms of helping our cities bounce back and, uh, and uh, not spending money on, on doubling down on autonomous vehicles and uh, ride hailing and, and all these kind of really inefficient modes of transport and expensive modes of transport. Uh, and exclusive modes of transport that only serve a certain seg segment of the population and, and cost our governments a lot of money to move these big metal boxes around. I couldn't agree more. So say, say the name of the group again. Decisio, D-E-C-I-S-I-O. Uh, and I can certainly send you some links to the, uh, the studies that they've done. For example, uh, and this is one of the more powerful examples, um, did a study for the Italian national government um, right when the coronavirus hit uh, and the, the Italian government was interested in learning what the impact of corona would be on uh, their streets in terms of um, all these people that were no longer using public transportation. They were scared or, uh, you know, uh, dis dissuaded by the threat of transmission to uh, to not take the bus or the, the tram or the train, um, the cost uh, to society if they all started driving all of a sudden on top of the existing traffic. And uh, uh, so they, they were able to weigh various scenarios in terms of um, could the Italian government um, enable some of those people to get on a bicycle uh, and cycle that trip instead of getting in the car uh, and again, they, they obviously found that for every euro invested in creating new space for cycling, uh, converted people or convinced them not to drive and, and ultimately save society 
billions of euros versus you know an investment of a few million euros in in creating that space in their cities. Wow, the numbers around healthcare those seem very significant. Is that something that they're putting into dollars and that people really sometimes I feel like people sort of disregard the like you know um, you know the stuff that's sort of uh, less dollars and cents, but are you seeing real dollar changes in healthcare budget? I, I would agree that it's an understudied and underappreciated return on investment when it comes to active travel. And just by giving people uh, a way to build exercise into their daily transportation leads to a, an obvious decrease in obesity and, and blood pressure and, and just keeps them uh, mobile and, and keeps their joints moving and, and it keeps their cir- the blood circulating. I'm going to uh, not quote you any numbers because I can't remember them off the top of my head, but uh, there are studies that show that uh, the levels of cycling here in the Netherlands prevent, I believe, six and a half thousand premature deaths every year. Uh, and the savings on the Dutch healthcare system is uh, between five and six billion euros, which is uh, something like three percent of the gross domestic product here. So, uh, again, simply by by investing a few millions euros in uh, giving people an active way to get from A to B, uh, the healthcare system is is uh, is saving itself billions uh, in terms of treating people for obesity and, and cardiac conditions and uh, even forms of cancer have been shown to be reduced with people that are more active. And you can see it in the types of people cycling here. I mean, it's not uncommon to see people cycling around in their 60s, in their 70s, even in their 80s. And especially now with electric bikes, um, it's become a one of the more popular modes of travel for uh, senior citizens. Uh, and in fact, it, there's an amazing statistic that they cycle in larger numbers than young adults because uh, for them, they can no longer necessarily drive. Uh, and so the bike becomes their their means of participation in society. It becomes a way to uh, to get from A to B uh, and, and live their, their lives instead of being reliant on others for their transport uh, and instead of being locked in their houses and, and, and trapped. Uh, uh, so uh, when we're talking about cycling, we're obviously uh, not just talking about uh, a means of transport. This is, you know, in a lot for a lot of people, a means of liberation. Mm-hmm. Do you find that the argument that um, everybody will get in shape, that it'll, you know, it's it's a great alternative to going to the gym, is that something that gets people, hooks people? Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, I, I think... Um, there is still a uh, this conflation uh, between cycling for sport and cycling for transport. And uh, one thing we we tend to stress is that you don't have to be physically fit to get on a bicycle, and it definitely doesn't involve necessarily involve uh, a change of clothes and a shower and 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 you know um, losing all the sweat. Uh, it can be done with the right bicycle under the right conditions. Um, just like, you know, no more strenuous than walking. We would often refer to it as walking with wheels. Um, so it, it, there is certainly, I think, important to, um, to stress the difference between getting physical activity 
uh, and building that activity in your day-to-day -day lives and, and exercise this, this perhaps more strenuous way. And, and certainly you can, if you want to, uh, ride a racing bike and, and ride it fast and get your heart pumping and, and the infrastructure is built for all kinds of different users. Um, but we find here that um, for the most part, people uh, tend to take it slow, take it easy uh, yeah. and wear whatever they happen to be wearing. And uh, they certainly don't think of it as, as exercise or physical activity, uh, even though they are inadvertently getting some. <laughs> How, tell us about what, what's happening in Paris. Do you have insight into what triggered why Anne Hidalgo, Mayor Anne Hidalgo, got sort of, you know, passionate about this? Yeah, well, I think Paris is one of those cities that we'll point to when we hear that it, you know, it takes too long or it's too hard or cities are have to remain the way they always were because it's its transformation has been really quick and really inspiring. And um, it's just proof that if you have the right leadership in place, you can really uh, make changes uh, in a very rapid time. And I think, uh, you know, every, it seems every week there's a new story coming out about uh, uh, a transformational project that they're planning, removing parking now, uh, turning the champs into a, a linear park uh, and, and the videos and the photos of, of streets packed with cyclists. Um, it, it's, it's really been something to watch and uh, um, they have, you know, for the most part done this with uh, a relatively small budget, uh, but a bit, large amounts of political will. And uh, I think it just proves that there are, there are very few um, technical barriers to uh, becoming a cycling city, it's, it's almost entirely cultural and political and, and uh, we have to demand more from our elected officials and, and uh, uh, make sure that they are uh, supported in, in making these changes and, and uh, Anne Hidalgo herself uh, proved immensely popular. She was just re-elected for a second term with I think 60 something percent of the vote, uh, uh, which helps us make this argument that there may be a few um, uh, angry voices, vocal critics out there that are, are resisting change, but for the most part, um, the, the electorate, the, the people who vote uh, may not uh, be tweeting their support or attending public hearings or out there advocating for um, other choices, but uh, they will vote for you if you put your neck on the line and, and, and try to make change because the status quo is very seductive, I think, for for elected officials. Um, but we're seeing the cities that are really transforming themselves are, are ones that are uh, willing to be brave and, and, and try something new. Have you seen it? I mean, there's the Anne Hidalgo model of change where it's somebody who is a passionate leader, as you say, like uses all their political will. Is it ever the opposite where it's the people who rise up and demand it? Yeah, it, it's um, it's kind of, a, you know, the best case scenario is 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 obviously both. Uh, but um, yeah, it's uh, I think I fail to think of an example where um, change hasn't been made without the appetite at the political level, because um, ultimately, they are the ones that, that make these decisions and, and get the ball 
rolling. Um, having all said all that, you know, it's uh, there are certain things that a city can do uh, to bypass the political process, whether it's you know uh, creating a, a long-term vision, uh, codifying some of these changes to uh, make sure they're written in design guidelines and and uh, and part of design standards that don't necessarily require a politician to vote on them or, or support them. Um, but uh, I mean, I think uh, history has shown that not only do people have to demand change, uh, and even here in the Netherlands in the 1970s, uh, the Stop the Kindermord movement, uh, which arose, uh, sorry, it, that translates to Stop Child Murder, by the way, uh, in English from Dutch, um, was a, a group of, of mothers and, and concerned parents that were seeing uh, the, the rising death toll in Dutch cities, protesting against it, seeing their neighborhoods being turned into, uh, well, NASCAR tracks for, for lack of a better uh, expression. And, and not only did they go out on the streets and demand change, but they organized themselves, they aligned with other groups um, and they you know, supported politicians that were willing and able to uh, to to do to do this and and take their cities in a different direction. So, um, I, I think if anything, the, the the protests, the the grassroots movements, they do have to organize themselves and make sure they are represented at the political level. Mm -hmm. Did that happen in Paris, or was it really from the top? Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't know too much about uh, that specific site uh, part of the world, but. Um, my understanding is it, it was a fairly top-down approach. Um, I don't think Parisians were out there on the streets, you know, protesting the, the dominance of, of cars. But I mean, if you've visited there lately, I think you can, uh, as soon as you step off of a, a metro station, you can understand the problem with the honking cars and the the the, the roaring engines and the. Uh, it's actually, uh, well, a, a few years ago, it was the second noisiest city in, in Europe in terms of levels, the levels of noise pollution. So they, the problem there is, is quite clear and, and quite um, tangible uh, when you're walking or, or uh, brave enough to cycle its streets. And I think Anne Hidalgo just recognized that um, if Paris was to remain relevant and resilient and um, and sustainable uh, in the 21st century that, that it was going to have to transform its streets. And, and lucky for her, it, again, maybe not American uh, style uh, boulevards and streets, but the, this Hausman uh, grid uh, that was implemented uh, gives them a fair amount of space to reallocate um, some of the curb space and, and some of the lanes away from the car to, to cycling and, and as we said, as we discussed earlier, we're seeing the uh, the result of that, and it's 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 quite inspiring. They still have a long way to go. Don't get me wrong. Uh, before they're they're uh, you know you're seeing young children on the streets of Paris cycling, but um, I think now they're at a, a real tipping point, uh, a, a point where the momentum is there, uh, but they really need to now start taking the next steps in terms of making their city work for eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds. And to get there is that, do you really just need a protected bike lane everywhere? Um, this is going to be an unpopular uh, statement, but the, the short answer is no. Uh, 
but there is nuance and, and uh, a lot of conditions there. Um, the, the, the Dutch approach has always been to um, segregate where necessary, um, but mix traffic where possible. And, and the attitude is such that if the speed and volume of cars can be reduced to an acceptable level, that is 30 kilometers per hour, 20 miles per hour, uh, and, and uh, no more than, uh, I think, 500 to 1,000 cars per day on that particular street, then uh, it's deemed that mixing cars and bikes is acceptable. Um, but if the speed exceeds uh, 20 miles per hour, if the volume of cars is at a, a certain threshold, uh, then the national design standards stipulate that a physical separation is absolutely required and there's no uh, getting away from that. Um, so there's, you know, there are, uh, but it's always context specific and, and uh, they have this really great set of national guidelines from the Crow Manual, um, which was this, this really amazing book that was written in the 1990s and, and uh, dictates uh, every street design process, redesign process um, to make sure that it works not just for the cyclists, but the pedestrians and, and the public transportation system and, and everybody who's using that street. Um, and also the intersections, and, and, and I think this is another really important point and, and uh, worth stressing is that intersections are quite complicated uh, and difficult, and, but they are where a lot of the collisions occur. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of um, American cities give up at the intersection and say, oh, it's too complicated, it's too difficult, uh, we'll make the protected segregated bike lane stop at the at the intersection and, and they just kind of throw the cyclist into no man's land for uh, a significant portion and, and the Netherlands has protected this idea of a protected intersection where there are uh, curb bulb outs at the corners that uh, protect the cyclists that are waiting and, and force turning traffic to do a 90 degree turn and, and make eye contact and actually see the cyclist um, and then also have a, a mid block uh, island or, or refuge uh, that means that that cyclist is only, well, crossing maybe one or two lanes of traffic before they're also protected. So it's, uh, again, it's uh, looking at things from a network level, uh, but between the, uh, the traffic calm streets and the, the segregated routes uh, and the protected intersections, um, you know, it's possible to, to uh, cycle from door to door virtually anywhere in a, a city in the Netherlands. Um, and, and that's really kind of, uh, you know, the conditions that you, you need to create if you want uh, uh, mass cycling and then that is cycling for, for everyone and not just the fit and the brave. Do you, in the big anxiety in LA is that the, is that we, is that putting in bike lanes will slow down the traffic and, we're so traumatized by traffic in LA yeah. that people can't bear the thought. Do you have guidelines around how do you, I mean, because honestly, the conundrum is you sort of want to slow down the traffic, but you also want people to get where they need to go and not be afraid and not be stuck. You know, you put it in a bike lane, then everyone's stuck in traffic. We can all predict what the outcome is going to be. So are there guidelines between like, do you give up parking? Do you give up a traffic lane? Do you give up the middle turn lane? Do you make streets one way? Like, what's the best way to 
to not step on the driver's toes and get the productive bike lane. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting um, challenge and, and it's, you know, it's this um, tremendous paradox that sits at the, the heart of this idea is that drivers assume that uh, if you take space away from cars, that you're ultimately going to worsen traffic, uh, increase travel times and, and, and make their life worse. And uh, the fact of the matter is you may be taking uh, some space away from the cars, but you are giving it to a more space efficient mode of, of travel uh, and you're enabling um, people that are making shorter distance trips. And, and this comes back to this idea of uh, the huge number of trips that take place in our neighborhoods under three miles. Uh, if you're allowing just a few of those people to uh, take a bicycle instead of a car, uh, then that's, you know, maybe 10 or 15% fewer cars on that given route at that intersection. Um, so you're, you're actually improving the flow and, and reducing uh, traffic by getting those people out of their cars and, and onto bicycles. And um, some of the work that we've done with cities is actually modeling, looking at um, the, the number of short trips in uh, a neighborhood or a city uh, and, and looking at the effect on traffic if, if you're able to convert some of those trips to, to bicycles. So it's not an easy argument to make. And again, it's very counterintuitive, um, but it's, it's borne out by the fact that, um, that here in the Netherlands, um, you know, it's, you would think that with all the space recycling that it would be um, the streets, the car uh, streets would be clogged and, and it'd be an absolute nightmare to drive in. But by providing people options and alternatives, um, they've actually created some of the best driving conditions in the world. And, and the levels of congestion here are lower than uh, virtually anywhere else because people can walk or cycle uh, if they choose. They can drive if they want to. They can take the bus or tram if they want to. Uh, they don't have that one choice made for them, uh, which which happens elsewhere. And, and part of the reason why there is such bad traffic in LA or Austin or Atlanta or any number of cities is that people are just driving a mile to the <laughs> uh, to get a jug of milk or, or you know, a, a case of pop or a bag of chips or, you know, going to uh, any number of places in their neighborhood instead of uh, because that choice has been made for them. And the more short journeys that we can, uh, we can take off the road uh, benefits drivers. And, and uh, uh, so I think we can frame this discussion that, uh, that creating space recycling is actually a way to improve travel times, to reduce congestion, and, and, and is a, a gift to, to people who want to drive and people who need to drive. I, I love that expression, the best driving conditions in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's like an advertisement. Like, if you want this, people want, right? Of course, I want the best driving conditions. Yeah, well, and, and and inversely, you know, people, we've tried this situation where we just keep widening streets and widening streets and building more parking and and supersizing everything. But we we quickly learned that the congestion levels come back the moment you widen the street because it attracts new trips and induces new car trips. Um, so you can never actually build your way out of congestion. 
the only way to build out of congestion is to provide people with more space efficient alternatives. And um, that's part of our challenge is successfully communicating that argument because still, I think for a lot of people, um, uh, traffic is still just a, a space problem. And if you give cars more space, you'll solve traffic as if, uh, you know, we haven't been doing that for our lifetimes and, and failing every single time. I mean, that's, I mean, that's another one of these sort of conundrums, Gordian knots is like sort of the idea of how do you right size traffic? How do you right size the streets? And it feels like one of the levers, which is something that people are not going to support in general is, you know, congestion pricing is to, is to keep the number down through pricing, pricing it because there's, it's a scarcity, right? Um, is that something you guys ever talk about, think about? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, congestion pricing is not something that's um, ever been applied here in the Netherlands. And in, and in fact, uh, every time it gets brought up, uh, the politicians immediately dismiss it as not viable or, or uh, applicable as if the Dutch drivers will revolt and suddenly vote them all out of office. But um, I think they've take, taken a more nuanced approach here and a lot of city centers, um, they simply uh, institute a policy that, that uh, um, designates them as low car. So cars aren't uh, completely banned, but um, there are either bollards or cameras set up at certain parts around the perimeter of the city. Uh, and the only people that are able to access the city are the residents or um, the, the businesses uh, that need freight or services. Um, they can, they can uh, get a, a permit uh, and same with people with disabilities. They can, they can also get a free permit to bring their car into the city, but everyone else is generally expected to park at the, on the perimeter of the city and then enter by, by foot or bike. Um, so there's no charge uh, per se for uh, for entering the city center, but it's it's more enforced through uh, these softer measures that that uh, make sure that people aren't driving through the city. Uh, they are more stopping on the outside and then and then coming in to shop and dine and and socialize and 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 do whatever. But uh, I think we're seeing you know elsewhere in the world uh, where maybe full on uh car bans aren't necessarily going to work that in stockholm and london and and now in my former hometown of vancouver there are discussions about um congestion pricing and, and just providing a bit of a uh well we often talk about carrots and sticks uh the stick end of the uh the equation to uh, just nudge people away to more responsible mobility choices rather than defaulting to the car if if uh, if you're going to not uh, hit them for $5 or $10 or whatever it happens to be, um, then maybe you can convince them to take the bus instead or the bike instead. Um, and those that can afford it will afford it. But uh, um, in, in London and in Stockholm, I think you've seen that initially there's a lot of resistance, uh, as there always is with these measures. Uh, but once they start getting implemented, uh, people embrace them and they see that it's ultimately about making a better city and, and making a better city center where uh, people will flock and, and spend their money and, and, and socialize with each other um, because uh, cars don't spend money, uh, people do. 
when you think about LA, just because that's where we are located and Bike Talk is located, do you have any advice for whether it's like how you would, you know, what would you like, what would you want to see in a place like LA or, or steps you think either activists or electeds should take? Yeah, I mean, um, so we were, as uh, so the Dutch Cycling Embassy, we're lucky enough to visit Los Angeles uh, November of 2019 for a couple of days. We had some really great meetings with uh, City Hall and uh, LA Metro and um, the city of Santa Monica. And uh, we were stressing two, two strategies. Uh, the first was uh, to embrace electromobility, e-bikes, uh, and, and build infrastructure for the electric bike, because I think you're seeing here in the Netherlands, it's, um, it's enabling more people to cycle uh, longer distances uh, and, and take trips that they may otherwise have deemed impossible by a regular bike. Um, so one of our participants, uh, a consultant called Bike Minded, is working on the LA River project uh, that is uh, um, going to hopefully, you know, transform a, a large part of that city into a greenway and uh, uh, an active travel corridor. Uh, but uh, e-bikes obviously make those longer distance trips uh, all the more viable. Uh, but we need to be de designing our infrastructure uh, to allow for perhaps uh, slightly higher speeds, the ability for people to pass comfortably uh, one another and, uh, and then providing end of trip facilities that accommodate for that. So secure bike parking for a very expensive electric bike charging facilities uh, and, uh, and, and really thinking about that door-to-door that -door experience. Um, the second thing that we were stressing and, and hence our meetings with LA Metro was the uh, the bike train or bike transit combination. And it's something I think they do really well here in the Netherlands is uh, plan their cycling network with their public transportation network uh, at the same time. So the, a lot of the bike lanes feed into the public transport system and then there's secure bike parking provided um, at the stops and stations. And uh, the reason is, is quite simple in that we will perhaps walk about a kilometer to the uh, to a stop or a station, we can cycle five times that in the same time uh, and with the same amount of energy. Uh, so suddenly you've got uh, a catchment area or a radius of that's five times bigger. So that's, uh, you know, a significantly higher number of customers that will can access your public transportation system and uh and uh, you know has the added benefit of putting more cyclists on the bikeway so there's this virtuous circle that exists between uh the trains and buses and 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 the bikes um and and the two kind of feed into each other really well and i think uh, especially in contexts like los angeles where people are perhaps spread a bit further apart they're traveling longer distances um allowing them to cycle to their uh their local bus stop or 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 uh, subway station um, would go a long way to feeding more customers into the uh the transit system and and getting more people on the bikeways but you have to think about designing your infrastructure stuff as such uh providing secure parking uh where it's needed and uh making the payment uh and ridership system as seamless as possible here it's done with a single smart card where you can access virtually everything with a tap. Uh, and I know in fact, actually the LA Metro uh, was the first in North America to um, allow people to pay for the bike share system with their 
their uh, tap cards. So um, there are a lot of things that we can do to create more multimodal cities. Again, it's not a, just about cycling. It's about uh, that, that uh, uh, combination of travel modes and, and we're not going to uh, replace all car trips, but uh, the more thought that we put into this and the more strategy and, and most importantly, the more resources, uh, the more uh, uh, car trips we can potentially convert to, to other means. And, and ultimately that means, well, as we've discussed, it means more money. It means, you know, a, a more economically prosperous uh, city. It means a more equitable city. It means a more livable city. Um, and uh, everybody benefits whether they, they get on a bike or not. Do you, this is so amazing. Do you, um, could you imagine in LA with like, you know, every street has a bike lane, you know, it, not over the hill, nothing crazy, but you know, down, I mean, I don't know how, no, how well you know LA, but like, you know, downtown to Santa Monica and, or could you imagine the beach cities being a fully networked Amsterdam and the rest of the city, you know, does what the rest of the city does. Uh, most definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, this, um, when you look at the, these, uh, these giant arterial roads that exist, um, there's so much space there. And, and, uh, as we were discussing, you know, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't require very much to just, uh, uh create a, a little bit of space for cycling. Um, there's going to be pushback. There's going to be controversy. It's inevitable. Um, but you, you do need elected officials that are going to be able to push through that and, and, uh, uh, and make it happen. And, and yeah, I, I mean, there's, uh, as we often like to point out, I mean, we, we hear all the time that, uh, um, cycling cities only work in flat places. They only work in sunny places. They only work in places with lots of space. Well, Los Angeles has all three of those for the most part, and uh, and there really are little to no excuses. Uh, uh, and I think you know, there's it's really interesting to think that historically maybe LA was was a cycling city at one point. Uh, when you look at these these old photographs of of, uh, of the way the streets used to look, it's just for the past fifty years we've we've uh, we've designed cycling out of our streets, and now it, it, it's time to perhaps take it back, uh, carve it back a little bit. Uh, um, but it's 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 not going to happen overnight, and, and and it's not going to be easy. Um, on the back of those uh, those visits we made to Los Angeles uh, in November of 2019, we were planning to do a physical follow up visit, a series of workshops in LA. Uh, in April of 2020, but that was ultimately scuppered by the coronavirus crisis. Um, so we're going ahead with some actual uh, digital workshops uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, one for San Francisco, one for uh, Seattle and Portland, but also one for the greater Los Angeles area. And that takes place on January the 28th. It's a Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Um, and we have 12 uh, different organizations from the Netherlands that are going to be uh, participating, uh, including uh, uh, some of the universities, uh, the ProRail, which is the national uh, rail service here, uh, uh, Crow, which was the manual that I had mentioned, the design manual, uh, uh, Bike Minded, which is one of the consultants I mentioned. Uh, so we have a number of breakout sessions planned and and in the hope that we can 
at least get this conversation started in, in Los Angeles and, and perhaps do a physical workshop there, uh, maybe not in 2021, but uh, 2022. Um, so I would direct people to our uh, website, DutchCycling.nl, if they'd like to register, it's completely free, um, or else check out our social media feeds. Uh, we are uh, Dutch Cycling Embassy on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, and you can find the link there for registration. Who would be the right people who would want to come to this? Yeah, we're we're we've left it open to virtually anybody that's interested, but uh, we're really targeting um, elected officials, uh, engineers, and transport planners that are working at uh, municipalities, private consultants that happen to be interested in 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 cycling and, and working on cycling projects, uh, but also activists and advocates that are interested in in learning more. Um, we've we've left it quite open, but. Uh, I think at, at last I checked, we had about a hundred people registered. So it's going to be quite a big group, and and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we can we can start a conversation that uh, that continues moving forward. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is biketalkpfk. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 